Well, good morning to you. Merry Christmas. Now, before I begin this morning, I do have two announcements that I would like to update uh, you with. Um, first up, uh, Blaine Satterfield, our facility manager, has taken another job, and his last day was this past Friday. Now, in my eight months working with Blaine and getting to know Blaine, I found that he is a very hard worker, he's humble, and he is teachable because he used every opportunity to learn and grow in various ways. So I say he worked on staff faithfully, and Blaine, I wish you the very best as you start in your new position. So let me also take this opportunity to tell you that Lewis Twine is our new facility manager. Lewis actually worked here over the summer, so we got to know him then. And Blaine was so gracious in communicating with me that we were able to find Lewis, and this transition will be very uh, easy, I think. He comes very qualified for the position, and Lewis is very excited to work in ministry. And the facility manager is essential to everything that occurs on this campus. So we are very happy to have Lewis pray for him since he has to work with me. Uh, and he begins after Christmas. So I, I say a thank you uh, to the personnel team for helping uh, in all of this these last few weeks. So I say that. Now, if we could have a few volunteers after service to remove the choir chairs and stack them in the choir room, that would be a huge help to us. We have an event uh, in here this week. Uh, so with several volunteers, it should only take a few minutes. So um, just so you know, that would be a big help to us. So now let's get started. The year is 1789. A small convoy of staff stop on the outskirts of town, and out of the humble and small stagecoach stage steps a tall man in his late 50s, and he's wearing his general's uniform, tailored and polished as an ode to past glory and freedom achieved. The man's horse is brought to him and he saddles it. He sits on a gold-fringed leopard-skin saddle pad to display the prominence of his position. Below him is the white horse, the great symbol of pride and power. His name is Prescott, and the night before, a pasty white substance was applied to his fur so that it would gleam bright white in the day's sunlight. The horse's teeth were cleaned, his mouth was rinsed, his hooves painted black and polished. So with a shout, the man and his horse giddy up through the main streets of the town to be adorned, uh, adored by the thousands. Now the man is George Washington, the new president and maybe the most famous man in the world at the time, but he has inherited a mess. When he previously rode to his inauguration, he wrote in his journal, he felt like a culprit who is going to the place of his execution. His wife wrote that they wanted to grow old in solitude and tranquility together, but instead he was freely elected 
by a vast majority of the people to this newly created office of president. The country was divided between those who were fearful of a strong central government and those who supported an expansion of federal powers. So even more so, there was long-standing regional differences of economics, views of slavery, and more. So essentially, every state was operating as its own nation. So Washington needed to unify this loose amalgam of virtually independent states into one nation. So he tried to do that by less than six months after his inauguration, Washington began a month-long tour of New England. Shortly after that, he uh, completed a tour of Rhode Island, and then he completed a tour of all the southern states, traveling about 2,000 miles in three months. He sought to meet everyday people, to gain new information on the nation and its citizens. He learned the terrible conditions of the nation's roads. He slept only in public taverns, and he learned much about the flea-infested roadside motels of his day. He did this to learn and serve the people. And he rode into every town on his white horse as a, sim as a symbol of strength to rally the people together, to come together as Americans. So in town after town, he was greeted with choirs and parades. City leader after leader gave him gifts and honor. In a large city like Boston, tens of thousands of people swarmed to catch a glimpse of him. They clogged city streets. People caught sight of him from second floor windows, from rooftops, and they, there were even specially built galleries just for a brief glimpse of the man on his white horse. A newspaper in Salem, Massachusetts said that the president had united all hearts and all voices in his favor. Now, it's hard to imagine such widespread, unanimous jubilation and acceptance as described in a book I recently read. People far and wide were of one heart and mind. They embraced him and they loved him. So this specifically jumped out at me as I was studying this text in John. Rather than unanimous praise, people were divided when the light came into the world. As we read, some received him, but many rejected him. Despite these responses, let's notice what John's prologue to his gospel makes clear. God desires to be known. You can follow along in your outline in your worship guide. So first, God desires to be known. I want you to notice the titles that are given to Jesus. He's described in John 1.1 as the Word. He spoke creation into existence, and here Jesus is the Word of God. John was referring to the Old Testament like Psalm 33.6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. John is connecting his reader's understanding of Jesus to the Old Testament, but he's also appealing to their senses. The, creation, the creating power of the word is audible. It can be heard, and on top of that, Jesus is called the light, like in verse 9. Jesus can be clearly seen as he illuminates the darkness of the world. 
God is appealing to our senses, which he designed in his creative power to reveal himself to us so that we could know him and could know what he is like. Second, God desires to be known because he made the world. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. God created people not because he needed anything. As Pastor Troy said two weeks ago, God was and is sufficient in his Trinitarian nature. There is perfect relational harmony between Father, Son, and Spirit. So he didn't create out of a need or out of any longing that he may have, but he created out of a desire to bless and to share Our world is a beautiful place. It wasn't created as some dystopian wasteland seen only on the grayscale. But God made a theater for his glory to shine. Third, God sent witnesses, illustrating to us his desire to be known. Like verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. John is the last in the long line of prophets who have testified to the same message that the Messiah would come and rescue people from their sins, which they committed against God. John had the most information about the Messiah compared to all the other prophets because John knew who the Messiah was. In fact, John saw him and he spent time with him. Jumping ahead to 129, behold, John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or verses 32 and 34, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. John means that I did not understand who I was seeing at the time. But he continues, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And number four, God desires to be known because he personally revealed himself to us. Verse 11, he came to his own. Working backwards, verse 10, he was in the world. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Jesus was his own greatest witness. He created the world, and then he stepped down into the world to show us who God is. The light was shining in the darkness, but then he took on flesh. And the everlasting word came to his world. So God desires to be known because he's the word and the light, because he made the world to display his glory to us, because he sent a multitude of witnesses to testify about himself, and because Jesus personally came to us. But this desire and initiative on God's part was met with two contrasting responses. Number one, verses 10 and 11 teach us that the world did not know him and his own did not receive him. 
Notice that the uh, word world is used three times in verses 10 and 11. And when John uses that word, he almost always uses it with negative connotation. Like John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, Jesus says, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus says that the world hates him because he tells the truth about the world. It does evil. Or John 14, 17. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world has no ability to receive God's spirit because it does not know Jesus. Just like is written in our text here in chapter 1. Or John 14, 30. I will no longer talk with you for the ruler of the world is coming. Jesus says the world is ruled by Satan who is opposed to and hostile to Jesus. Notice the negative connotation in John 15, 18, and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world follows its ruler in opposing Jesus and by hating Jesus' own people, who Jesus chose out of the world. Last one, John 16, 8 through 11. And when he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will not see me any longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit will convict the world because the world is settled in its sin, it lacks righteousness, and it's heading toward judgment. According to D.A. Carson, the world is the created order consisting of human beings and human affairs and is resoundingly negative in its response to Jesus, as John the author makes clear. But in verse 11, notice that the focus narrows even more. Not only did the world at large not know him, but his own did not receive him. Notice that his own is repeated twice. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now this is the extent of my Greek chops here. And I read this in an English book. But the first, his own, is gender neutral in the language. So this refers to Jesus' home or his domain. Jesus made the world so he came to his own property. But the second, his own, is masculine in Greek. So John means that Jesus' own people, the Jews, did not receive him. Every two years, Ligonier, the ministry organization founded by the late R.C. Sproul, releases a theology survey of the U.S. population. So earlier this year, the 2022 version of the survey was released, and it shows that the U.S. continues to jump headlong into secularism. But the survey also reports 
the responses of self-proclaimed evangelicals. According to the survey, evangelicals were identified based upon their supplied church affiliation or with their agreement with these four statements. So of those surveyed, those who said that they were an evangelical is someone who agrees that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It is very important for me to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus as their savior. Number three, Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And number four, only those who trust in Jesus alone as their savior receive God's free gift of eternal life. So you're an evangelical, according to this survey, if you agree with these four things. Now, I'm stretching this text a little bit in what I'm about to say, since this text refers to Jesus's blood people, the Jews. But evangelicals are also surely Jesus's own people by their own admission. And yet, how they responded to some questions on the survey is concerning. So I'll give you five examples. Respond to this statement. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Evangelicals, 65% agree or strongly agree. Everyone sins a little bit, but most people are good by nature. 57% agree or strongly agree. God accepts the worship of all religions. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, 56% agree or strongly agree. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Evangelicals, 43% agree or strongly agree that Jesus is not God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was created by God. So to summarize, a mentor of mine in seminary wrote, the world that the word created did not recognize him, and the people that waited for him rejected him. But number two, he was received by those who believed in his name. Believing in Jesus, including believing who Jesus says that he is, is the requirement to receiving Jesus. In fact, the word believe is used 98 times in the Gospel of John. It's essential to John. But John never once uses the, the noun form faith or belief. Only the verb form believe, emphasizing the action John wants his readers to take by reading his gospel. In fact, John even gives the purpose for his writing in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing is an action that you must take 
in order to have life. And the gateway to this life is the believing in the name of Jesus, which represents his entire character. So if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you will have life in his name. Without believing in his name, you and I will not have life because we are spiritually dead in our sins, Ephesians 2.1. We are the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. And by our own nature, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2.3. Our default is actually rejecting Jesus because our sinful nature, we carry out evil actions. We must instead turn from our spiritual darkness and receive the light by believing in the name of Jesus. And our life must change as a result. We must begin to show that we are no longer in the world of darkness, but have come into the Word's light. Turn to the letter of 1 John, chapter 1. Or I have put the full text of what we're going to read on the back of your outline. John also wrote this letter of 1 John, and the section that we're going to look at is chapter 1, 5 through 2, 6. John has written a case study to expand upon what the two responses to Jesus look like in everyday life. So I'll start in John, or 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So remember, John is explaining further those who receive Jesus and those who do not receive Jesus. So Looking at the text, the first thing that jumped out at me was the repetition of the phrase, if we say, 1-6, if we say, 1-8, if we say, 1-10, and then similar in 2-4, whoever says. So that tells me that we should notice the words of a person. What you say matters. 
So go back to 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. 1.8. If we say we have no sin. 1.10. If we say we have not sinned. 2.4. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments. So these verses describe what a person says about how they live. But in each of these four verses, notice the verdict. 1-6, we lie. 1-8, we deceive ourselves. 1-10, we make him a liar. 2-4, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So if you say one thing, but you do another, you're a liar. And your whole life is fake. So notice, second, a person's actions must match their words. Look at 1.6 again. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie with our words and do not practice the truth. Our actions lie too. Instead, a great test for if we have received Jesus is found in 2.3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 2.5 is very similar. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. We know him and we have the love of God in us if we live the way that he demands that we live. But according to the previous verse in 2.4, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So to summarize all of this, look at 2.6. Whoever says he abides in him, not to walk in the same way in which he walked. So reflecting on all of this, our words are sound bites into our heart. So every single word reflects what resides in our hearts. Your actions are like a big screen projection of your heart, of what resides in your heart. So you know when you try to stream a movie, but the connection is bad, so you see the lips moving, but the words and the sound is not in sync? Well, it makes for a terrible movie viewing experience. So if your words and your actions don't sink. It reveals a wicked heart. And John would say that you know him not. So I tried to consider every time I boasted for personal gain, or every time I spoke out of unrighteous anger or jealousy, or every time I said something mean or short or hurtful, or every time I slandered another person, or every time I stretched the truth to make myself look good, or make myself not look so bad, or every time I have spoken in a self-seeking way, or the countless times I have purposefully spoken in ways that I know will cut or harm another, or the times I have been manipulative, or the times I have spoken hypocrisy, 
or the times I have spoken blasphemies, or the times I haven't been guarded with my words like I should have been, or the times I have promised to do something but I never did it, or the times I gossiped or I packaged an untruth as a truth. I tried to remember all of these things, but I figured that I could recall less than 1% of 1% of all of these sound bites. And I realized that many of these even occurred after I received Jesus by believing in his name. Truly, my heart is wicked, and I have no moral high ground to stand before you. Not to mention all the other wicked sound bites that I don't remember, but that God remembers. Not to mention um, all my evil actions or all the times I did not do the good I should have done. What hope do I have because my sins are many? 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 says, The Lord is an avenger in all of these things after Paul lists various sins that describe an impure life. I deserve God's punishment. The Lord will come for me because my heart is sinful and because I have sinned against Him. And I think if, if you're honest with yourself, we're in the boat together. But I want you to notice the two times in this First John passage that Jesus is specifically mentioned by name. Look at 1-7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Or skip ahead to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. So both times Jesus is mentioned by John in this passage, and this passage is about receiving him or rejecting him, Jesus is dealing with sin both times. In verse 7, Jesus is cleansing from all sin. And in chapter 2, Jesus is the righteous one who advocates with his Father about uh, sin being removed from people. And he has that authority because he's the propitiation for sins, meaning that God's wrath is appeased by him. Where there was wrath, now there's favor Notice that Jesus could be the propitiation for the whole world's sins. That's the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice. This is for you and, and for me. Wicked words, wicked actions, cleansed. Flowing out of wicked hearts, cleansed. But you must receive him. And here's another illustration of what receiving him is like. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your words must change. A person that does not receive Jesus is defined by spewing vile trash, by mis 
representing and denying their sins. But a person that receives Jesus is one who owns up to what they've done and said, who does not hide what they say, but confesses freely. God, I sinned against you, so I need your grace. Please, God, help me the next time I'm in a similar situation. Give me the strength not to act in the same sinful way, and help me Give me the grace not to speak in the same sinful way, but help me, God, turn from my sin. That's confession. That's what living a life of repentance or continuously turning from your sin is like. And that's how you believe in his name. The chorus of one of my favorite songs represents this well. I plead the blood of Jesus that I may enter in. I plead the blood of Jesus that I may live. The all-sufficient covering, the cleansing flow, I plead the blood of Jesus to make me white as snow. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how you receive Jesus, and that's how you continue to receive Jesus. Memorize that verse, and then do what it says, often. So I just have one question for us to consider. Do you frequently confess your sins, and do you lean on the gracious sacrifice of Jesus? If you do, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. But if confession of sin is not part of your life, then 1 John 1, 8 applies to you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Pastors Kevin DeYoung and Alistair Begg point out that being close to Jesus is both the safest and the most dangerous place to be. Being in church, hearing the gospel message in song and prayer and in preaching of the Bible is both a great privilege and a great danger because you have to respond to it. And your response has everlasting consequences. The longer a person is able to sit in church, hear the gospel message, and remain unconverted, despite the clarity of the Bible and despite the promptings of the Holy Spirit, despite singing rich truths, despite the exhortations of the preachers, the longer a man or woman sits in this position without receiving Jesus, the greater their eternal danger. So today is the day of salvation. So I implore you, receive Jesus today by believing in his name, by honestly confessing your sins, and by pleading for his grace to forgive you. Now, consider the long-term goal that Jesus had. He was long-suffering as he came into the world that did not know him and to his own people that did not receive him. 
Despite this rejection that he knew he would have to face, he did not alter course or sway from his goal. He came motivated by love. To, but to achieve his goal, he had to persevere through so much. Consider this. He was born as a baby, slowly growing up into a man, enduring the intense pressure of temptation from the evil one and from the world, the taunts from his family and from his hometown. He was overlooked and written off by the very people claiming to wait for him. He was betrayed by a close friend to the religious establishment who hated him. He was turned over to the Roman government as a criminal who humiliated him. He was tortured and ultimately those uh, people killed him. He endured death with his body placed in a dark, lifeless tomb. This was the plan established by him and his father before the beginning of the world. But when it finally came time to accomplish it, Jesus was overcome with such grief in the garden. Yet he went through with it without sin, and he became the righteous sacrifice. What was this goal that Jesus lived for and died for? Well, we're back in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. This is the goal. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus gave the right to become children of God to those who received him. Notice that transformation is possible. For those who no longer want to follow the sinful ways of the world, for those who desire to change, for those who don't want to repeat their parents' pattern of sin, for those who come out of the darkness and step into the light, Jesus is the divine right giver. He will gladly welcome you into God's family, for that is his long-term goal, to create a forever family for God by welcoming people as sons and daughters to his Father. In verses 10, 11, and the first half of 12, the focus is on people and their response to Jesus, but now the focus shifts in verses 12b and 13 to God. Verse 13, God the Father brings about a spiritual birth. John makes it clear with a three-part negation that it is God's power and God's initiative for people to be born of God. These children of his were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We learn that this birth does not have anything to do with the people involved, their bloodline, who their ancestors are, nor the will of man. The theme introduced here is greatly expanded in John chapter 3 when Jesus talks with Nicodemus. And John 1.13 makes the same general point of John 3.6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. All things involved in natural birth do not relate to the spiritual birth because one is born of God by His Spirit. Now, God the Father and Jesus the Son are the two separate actors involved in verses 12 and 13. 
So if you remove the negations of verse 13, it would read this, who were born of God. God is causing the spiritual birth into his family, but Jesus is the actor in verse 12. So two weeks ago, we learned that Jesus is the word who is God and who was with God in the beginning. He created the world. And last week we learned that he is the light shining into the world. So how did he use his authority when the light came into the world? Verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is authorizing the adoption into God's family. He is using his immense authority to put his own stamp of approval on us. Kevin DeYoung again says that God has one son by nature, but many sons and daughters by adoption. So let me briefly try to illustrate for you in a small way what Jesus is doing in verse 12 through the adoption of our son. So our process could be summarized like this. God making us wait a long time in which we question God's goodness, power, and care for us. But then God working suddenly. 26 months after starting the process, I wrote this in my journal. A miracle happened today and nothing short of it. We received the written orders today just before the court's month-long holiday recess with only a day to spare. He is finally and officially our son and part of our family. What God ordained long ago, a government through its court system and human judge confirmed last week verbally and today in writing. So to quote from a portion of the written orders, it is directed that henceforth the child, now named as Peter Suhan Gray, is the adopted son of Mr. Robert Gray and his wife, Miss Erica Gray, who have become the adoptive parents of the child henceforth. The child shall have all rights as a natural-born son for all purposes of law. So we can learn from this as this teaches us about Jesus. Jesus is the superior judge granting sonship. To summarize, we then traveled halfway across the world. We went to where he was, we picked him up, we flew across the country, and then the three of us went to the U.S. Embassy. The only thing that we could bring inside was the fat stack of our documents. We're led inside past masses of people to a special section in the very back devoted to adoptions. My name was called, so I stepped to the counter, and I am so nervous because I'm about to pass out, um, because I'm afraid that we lost one of our documents along the way. So Daniel, the worker behind the counter, began to talk to me. I tried to talk to him and respond to him, but my heart was thumping in my throat. I passed him the various things that he requested, and to summarize, he produced this elegant certificate. He took out his pen and he signed his name. He then took his stamp, he put it in the ink, and he stamped the certificate. I received it in this large sealed envelope with these instructions, do not open. But when you return home, hand this to the agents in the airport. 
This grants your son the ability to enter the country as a citizen. So this too teaches us about Jesus. Jesus is the superior advocate granting citizenship. So to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So Jesus is the judge granting sonship, and Jesus is the advocate granting citizenship. So let me urge you today to walk into the light that's shining in the darkness, to receive Jesus by believing in his name, to confess your sins to him, and you will be welcomed into a new family. Jesus himself will authorize your adoption, and by the new birth, you will join his father's family. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for the offer that stands and the sacrifice that makes it possible. Thank you, Father, that your family is open and you are willing and ready to receive but I pray that all of us would receive you. I pray that all of us would receive you like 1 John 1.9 says. May we confess our sins. And Father, you promise. And I believe you that you're faithful and just. And you'll forgive us our sins. And you will cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. May we receive you like that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.